right, please open your Bibles, because you should already be doing that. Some of you have. Awesome. And go to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. We're going to be reading from verse 8 through verse 20 this morning. And before we jump into the text, though, um, let's talk about what is the main theme for today's message. As usual, there's a lot of different directions that we could go. I mean, you can preach hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons uh, and, and all be different to some extent from the same text. But I felt led to focus on a particular theme that's reflected here in the title, and that is the supremacy of Christ, meaning Jesus is superior over all things in every way. And this passage gives us some insight into that fact. So we're going to look at Scripture this morning through that lens, okay? How it reveals an area where Christ is supreme. And then we're going to look at what the the therefore is for each of those things. In other words, what that fact of the supremacy of Christ means for us, okay? So as each aspect of his supremacy is expressed in the text, we're going to see an indication of what he deserves from us, his creatures, based on whatever aspect he is supreme in. So uh, we're going to be covering a lot of narrative ground today, and because uh, we're going to, a lot of what we're going to read is similar to what we've already read many times, because it's happened to Paul in previous places. Um, but we're also going to be spending only a brief amount of time on the last portion of text, and that's because we're coming back to it next week, and we're going to dive in a lot deeper next week. So um, with that in mind, let's recap. Paul has been traveling around, a, <clears throat> it's kind of modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, He's been preaching the gospel. Last couple of weeks, we've seen uh, Priscilla and Aquila doing some ministry together as a couple, which is really cool, kind of a power couple. Uh, we were introduced to a very powerful preacher by the name of Apollos, and, uh, and some of what we would consider maybe Old Testament saints were baptized into the church by Paul in Ephesus. And we're going we're gonna to pick up roughly where we left off there, that same time period. Now it's, uh, it's early in Paul's third missionary journey. Okay, that's kind of where we're at right now. So um, why don't we pray? We'll begin. Father God, I just ask in Jesus' name for each person here, let your word take root and bear fruit. Father, I thank you for the, the great news uh, that I've been receiving the last day or so and just, um, just blessings all around, God. We we are in this room. A lot of us have things on our hearts that are weighing heavily. A lot of us are, are struggling in some way. Some of us are, are just enjoying a brief respite from struggle. But Father, we are all here to learn about you, uh, and not for the sake of information, but for the sake of transformation, God. We want to become more like Jesus. We know, Father, that that is why you have called us, that you can make us like Jesus in order that you might glorify yourself in all of creation. And so, God, this morning, please... Help our hearts to be open and help our minds to be prepared that you might make us more like Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. All right, uh, you know, starting in verse 8, <coughs> excuse me, and, uh, and he, that's Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. We're going to pause there for a second because you may recall that Paul's MO on his missionary journeys has been basically just to to go into the synagogue first whenever he shows up at a new place. Why is that? Anybody remember? Who's in the synagogue? The Jews. That's where the Jews are, right. 
And so on the Sabbath, uh, he would almost always make an effort first to reach out to the Jewish people, just as Christ initially brought the good news of salvation to the Jews. Okay? And, and being Jewish, Paul obviously had an affection for his own people. And, and I want to interject something here. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Okay? I, I want to point this out. As Christians, we obviously want what is best for all people. Amen? Okay, and we are to treat everyone with kindness and respect. That's regardless of, of their, their skin color, their sex, their economic status, their nationality. Uh, we're even called to be gracious to those of a different religion or political affiliation or opinion as well, even if they're totally wrong. We're still supposed to be kind. So just bear that in mind. That's very important, okay? However, we should recognize that it's not only normal, it's apparently also biblical to feel a strong affinity toward people that are similar to you. As long as you don't you know, think or act as if people unlike you are inferior because they're different. Okay, and I'm saying this because if most of the people that you spend time with are people that you have a lot in common with, there's no shame in that. Okay, that's actually been pushed a lot lately. Like you, like you should feel bad if you know, your, your immediate circle isn't as diverse as the entire world. Now, ideally, yes, that'd be fantastic, but most of us don't live in the entire world. We live in a neighborhood. We work in a workplace. You know, we, we attend a school. So being around people that are a lot like you, that doesn't make you a chauvinist or a feminist or an ageist or a bigot or whateverist, okay? It means you're human. It is natural to feel a connection to people like you. Okay? However, we should remember, this is very important, we have one commonality that is more important with any Christian of any culture than we have with a non-Christian of our own culture, and that is the Holy Spirit. We have that in common. Even if we don't speak the same language, even if we don't look the same, if we, we have that thing in common with another believer, and that is more important than any other factor. So bear that in mind. That may have been a bunny trail, but I, I think some of us need to be reminded of these things, okay? Now, now, what does this passage teach us about the supremacy of Jesus Christ? I want us to, to look at how it says that the people were persuaded about the kingdom of God by what was the tool that Paul used. Do you see it? Say it again. Reasoning. Reason. He used reason. He used logic to lead people to the cross, Friends, what is reason based in? Truth. As often been stated, all truth is God's truth. You know, St. Augustine is credited as saying the truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. Let it out of its cage and it will defend itself. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't learn apologetics for the sake of, of defending truth. You know, and, and, and it doesn't mean that we don't need to share truth. It means that truth, in the end, will triumph because truth is what actually is. It's going to be revealed in the end. Lies can reign for a season, but one day all lies will be exposed for what they are and all lying tongues will be silenced. Anyway, the point here is, is Paul's use of reason and logic to point to God makes sense because you can't disprove truth. Now, you can disbelieve truth, but after a while, 
when truth is revealed, if you keep disbelieving it, you, you look like a flat earther, you know? I mean, it, it, it makes no sense. And Scripture says, let God be true in every man a liar. And it says in Hebrews that it is impossible for God to lie. And Jesus says that he is the way and the truth and the life. So Christ is most definitely supreme in truth. Now, what does that mean for us? If we know that all truth is God's truth and it all belongs to the Lord, we also know that he reveals all of the truth that is necessary for us to live a godly life through his example and through his word. And so what we should do is pursue him. We should both desire to know what is true and who is truth, and we should strive to seek after it, to chase it, to obtain it. We must grab hold of the truth of God, especially as it's expressed in the person of Jesus Christ and the things that, that he said and did. If we believe, and we should, that the full text of Scripture is breathed out by the Lord, if we believe that, but we don't engage it on a daily basis, it's like owning a golden you know, chicken that lays a golden egg every single day if you'll just hold it for you know, 15 minutes but you just ignore the chicken because it takes too much effort, right? That, that makes no sense. And, and the, the, the truth of God has more lasting value than gold. You know, gold can't sanctify you and mold you in the image of God. It certainly can't save your soul for eternity. But the truth of Christ paves the way for these things. We ought to pursue it, recognize its value, and chase after it. So let's read on. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, Paul withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Now, the same scenario has been played out on several other occasions, right? Where Paul goes into a town, and he, you know, as mentioned before, he usually goes to the synagogue first, and then one of two things will happen. Either he will be basically uh, winning over a lot of converts and, and all these people are excited about the gospel uh, and, and, and the Jewish residents will accept him as one of their own or he's going to be rejected by most of those people and then he moves his meetings to another place instead of the synagogue. Usually it's a place where he can reach out to Gentiles more effectively as well. In either case, though, wherever Paul goes, Jews and Gentiles usually end up worshiping Christ together as followers of the way, right? And that's how Paul would plant a church. And so if you're wondering why we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, it's because, honestly, we've, we've talked about it a few times. It's happened in, in the book of Acts several times already, covered it in a few other messages. Um, and so I felt led to focus elsewhere. But if you'd like to you know, get some more details along those lines, you can check out previous messages. Um, the beginning of chapter 17 was on uh, September 25th, the beginning of chapter, excuse me, August 18th, or 28th, sorry, and the beginning of 18 was on September 25th. So if you want to go back, you can look at those. But for today, we're just going to say what happened here. This was pretty typical for Paul, okay? The gospel message is, is tolerated at first, but eventually enemies of the gospel become known and they, they start being hostile toward the Christians, okay? So Luke writes, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is neat. This is one of these places where Paul gets to stay for a while. I mean, two years is, is a pretty long time for him. He's just there making disciples. 
And I want to say, for you know, just to kind of clarify, Luke's comment that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks, is likely intended not to be read as a literal statement, but as an idiom used the same way that we might say, everybody knows that. You know, like everybody knows Epstein didn't kill himself. Just saying. That type thing. Okay, Albert Barnes' commentary says that it means the great mass of people. And John Gill's commentary says that Luke is referring to Asia Minor, where Ephesus was the chief city, as opposed to what we think. Like, we think of the entire continent as Asia. This is more the, the bottom portion of Asia, where a lot of people lived, okay? So, I just want to point this out. The point is that a whole lot of people were hearing the word of the Lord because Paul's base church at Ephesus was spreading it far and wide, okay? And the knowledge of God has only grown since then. So our second point on the notes page is, thanks to the wonderful truth of the gospel, Christ is supreme in fame. He's supreme in fame. There's a song that we sing. You know which one I'm talking about? Famous one. You are the Lord, the famous one, the famous one. It expresses the first and last verse of our psalm this morning rather well, which is, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, Psalm 19 and Romans 1 tell us that God has revealed his greatness. He's revealed his character and his creativity all throughout nature, all throughout the heavens. You know, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament is handiwork. Romans 1 talks about how there's nothing about God's power and, and that, can, that can't be seen by his creation. And yet, his more specific revelation that his son Jesus is the Christ who died on the cross for our sins, he paid for our sins, and who was buried and who rose bodily from the dead. That message is the gospel, which is spread by word of mouth. You see, there's the very uh, general revelation, and then there's the very specific revelation that's in the gospel. And so we are obliged to give him recognition in all things. We should acknowledge that he is the one true God. We should organize our lives around his word and do that in order to spread his fame among the people of the world. It's been said that a lie gets all the way around the globe while the truth is still getting its shoes on. And I think that's typically true. But in the case of the message of Christ, his supremacy is spread powerfully wherever the gospel is preached. I think, in fact, if, if churches today would simply preach the gospel message of Jesus rather than self-help or moralism or sensationalizing things that shouldn't be the focus of the church, I, I think that the simple gospel would change a lot more lives. I believe it would change society. I want to encourage you all, if, if your workplace or your school, or your family is somewhere that Jesus is not being lifted up. If he's not being acknowledged, you can do it yourself. You can be salt and light in whatever place the Lord has placed you. Let's keep reading. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs were aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's pretty wild. 
when I read that, it, 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 it's almost mind-blowing. There's, there's so much in this, but, but there's, there's actually a couple of points that we're going to look at. This paragraph kind of showcases them for us. But before we get into them, I'd like to point out what's happening here in this passage is highly irregular. Okay? There are very few places in Scripture where we read about miraculous signs of this sort you know, happening, maybe four or five that I can think of. The great majority of miracles in the Bible were done in ways that were specific and that were intentional on the part of the vessel that God used. You know, the, the person, I mean, and that he did the miracle through. Um, for example, there's a really odd story in the Old Testament where Elisha's bones are in a grave and someone's trying to hide a, a dead body and the dead body touches Elisha's bones and he's revived. I mean, that's pretty amazing. It's also pretty specific. Uh, we read about the woman who reaches out and touches the hem of Jesus' cloak, and she's immediately healed from an issue of blood. God certainly knew, but in that moment, Jesus didn't have that revealed to him, and he said, who touched me? Or the story of Peter. There's a place where it says even his shadow would fall across people, and they would be healed. That's amazing, but it's not typical. Just want to say that. And let's not forget, it is God who performs the miracle ultimately. It's not even Paul, as the, as the first part of the paragraph clearly states. And I say this because, you know, holy objects containing power and being used to heal people, that's been a part of church superstition for almost two millennia. But it is incredibly rare in Scripture. There was a time where people trafficked in relics. They would claim this is a bone of Peter. This is a vial full of the blood of Christ. And they would say that these things perform miracles. In fact, what we call, we might call this large-scale indiscriminate healing, it only shows up in the ministries of Jesus, Peter, and Paul. And in each case, the purpose was to produce faith in Christ. It was to promote, to promote the spread of the gospel. Today, any examples of large-scale indiscriminate healing that we are likely to see are almost certainly and provably fake. It's not to say that God couldn't do that. He absolutely could if he chose to. It's simply that he didn't, he didn't even do it often in Scripture. And the evidence does not support that it's a common thing today. Now, having said all that, what do we learn about Christ in this passage? I think all of this healing, this, this restoration of fallen creation is a reminder that he is supreme in goodness. Christ is supreme in goodness. And the word is very clear about that. There's probably the goodness of God, I would say, is one of the most hotly debated topics among neo-atheism. Because these are people who, they argue that a good God wouldn't do or wouldn't allow some of the things that happen today or, or don't happen in the world today. But if we are humble enough to admit that, that we, we still have an incomplete, a, a fallen sense of morality, then the things that God does and the things that, that God allows that we may question, we can still trust. We can still trust Him to do what is good through those things. You know, as finite beings, I think we should see that, that there are factors that we're going to miss because we don't, we don't see the beginning from the end like God does. He sees the, the end from the beginning. We just see that little bit in the middle that we're living in. God can see it all. 
And here we see that the God is healing people physically and he's healing them spiritually by driving out demons, which frankly, I find that far more impressive. That's a pretty wild thing to, to even consider. The fact that God would do these things, even for, even for those who, who follow false gods, those who don't even know him, at least not yet, that shows incredible patience, incredible kindness on the part of God. And, you know, we know that God's common grace falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. That, that's according to Jesus. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount. But his goodness is revealed. It's, it's not only in the natural, but particularly in the supernatural. And as a result, God deserves all honor and praise for who he is and for what he does. And once again, we read, this is not lost on the psalmists. In Psalm 96, he wrote, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And then in Psalm 47, it says, Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy for the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. You know, each psalm, I think, continues with a description. Many, many reasons that, that God deserves this praise. The Bible tells us that the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. And it truly matters that we, that we make a point to lift him up, to honor his character and to honor his deeds when we sing these worship songs. But don't miss the connecting thought here that's in both of these psalms, okay? In each case, we're reminded that God deserves something else, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, all right? But in the meantime, we should also note these miraculous signs done in the name of Christ show that he is supreme in power. Christ is supreme in power. Jesus can heal any disease. There, there is nothing that is too hard for him. We're actually, I think, seeing an example here in this, this congregation of someone that's being healed. The doctors can't figure it out. And it's happening, amen? Because he is the great physician. He is Yahweh Yirah. He, he's, he's the Yahweh Rapha. He's the God that heals. And we know this. Just be aware of that. Jesus can heal any disease. There's nothing, there's nothing that can thwart his will. He is nothing too, too strong to defeat Christ, nothing too hard for him. There's a place in Scripture where the Lord says to Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? And that's kind of a euphemism. for he, He's saying, is there anything I can't do? The answer is no. God can do whatever God wants to do. And we see over and over in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, that he can also drive out any demon. And if he is truly that powerful, it makes sense, though, that he is deserving of fear. Christ is deserving of fear. Now, this is one of those concepts that Christians over the centuries have struggled with, and I think sometimes we find this confusing, frankly. You know, we know the Bible teaches that perfect love drives out fear, right? And we know that we're not given a spirit of fear or of timidity, but of what? Power and love and self-control, right? We know the Bible teaches us that we can call God Abba, which is, is like saying Daddy. So, so, so why are we supposed to fear him? And I think it makes sense to explain it 
that fear has at least two different meanings, and it, it kind of depends. Which one applies to you depends on where your heart is. It's the state of our heart. Young children of a good, a good father are going to have a healthy fear of him. Not the same kind of fear that you would have of an abusive father, but, but a sense of awe because he knows so much more than you do. He's so much more capable. And they might have a respect for his power. They know that he might punish them for disobedience, but they also, they, they know that his discipline is a reminder of his love and of his involvement in their lives. And that's a good kind of fear. It's a right kind of fear. Whereas a person outside the family who intentionally harms one of those children should have a different kind of fear of that good father. They should know they are subject to justice and righteous anger against their wickedness. They should know it will not end well for them. And that's the two different kinds of fear. Christians ought to have the first kind. You know, I once heard it said, uh, and I've used this example before, but I like it, of a child who gets in a car accident in his father's car when he takes it without asking. Okay, two kinds of phone calls he might, or two kinds of statements he might make. The first child says, oh no, my dad's going to kill me. And the second one says, oh no, I'd better call my dad. We ought to be the second kind. Does that make sense? They're both children who've sinned against the father, but, but the second response shows a better, a better understanding of the good and the loving character of the father and that relationship that exists between the father and child. Don't have terror in your heart when you think of the Lord, friends, okay? Unless you've not been reconciled to him. In which case, have terror. If that's the case... If that's the case, you ought to have a well-deserved sense of terror in your heart. If you have not been reconciled through Jesus Christ, you need that change of relationship, and it only occurs by God's grace through faith. We're going to talk about that more in a bit. Let's go to verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, I think that's a great phrase, itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, now, the youth group kids that were here last Wednesday night, they already heard this story. Um, there's a big difference, okay, between the Lord casting out demons through Paul and then some random guys just, just deciding they're going to try to invoke the authority of Christ by simply saying his name, right? Despite the fact there's, they have no relationship with him at all, okay? And it doesn't go well. It says, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <laughs> and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. You think they tried that again? Probably not. What a strange story. You, know, you might think, why, why Luke include that? I think, it's, I think it's, in, it's in the Bible, at least in part, to show just how ineffective a false profession can be. There is no power for the person who is not in Christ. You need to understand that. I mean, think about it. The, the guys are trying to drive out a demon, just, just one demon, right? 
by quoting a formula. The formula was lacking the one basic ingredient that it had to have, which was faith in Christ. They didn't have that. They were sons of the Jewish high priest. They were probably Sadducees who didn't believe in an afterlife. You know? I guess they had they couldn't have been Sadducees because, right, Craig, because they, I'm always asking you, because they, they believed in, in spirits. So maybe they were Pharisees. We don't know at that point. But nonetheless, they clearly didn't have faith in Christ. They're just trying to invoke his name in some sort of uh, formulaic way. And it goes to show just how weak also we human beings are when we're, we're placed up against a spirit. I mean, one demon-possessed guy overpowers, strips, and beats the tar out of seven different dudes at one time. Now contrast that to another famous story in the Bible. This is from Mark chapter 5. They, it says, that's Jesus and the disciples, came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met with him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who lived among the tombs. It says, and no one could bind him anymore, uh, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, I beg you, I implore you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of him, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? Now, I I think that when Jesus said, Come out of him, you unclean spirit, at least one of them left. Because it's not like they can disobey Jesus. But then he realized, there's a few more in there. And Jesus said, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, a legion was about 5,600 Roman soldiers. That's a bunch. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. Did you catch that? So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. That's right, all those pigs committed suicide. That's correct. My dad says, that's the first recorded case of deviled ham. What are we seeing here, though? In the story of Acts 19, one demon-possessed guy takes out seven human beings who are not full of the Holy Spirit. In Mark chapter 5, a man who has a legion of demons living inside of him is easily set free from those demons by one man who does have the Holy Spirit of God, and that is the Son of the Most High God. Now, friends, this is while Jesus was still here on this planet as God in the flesh. And so how much more is Christ supreme over all now that he has been fully glorified? Think about that. Think about it. You know, Philippians 2 tells us that Christ left heaven and emptied himself and became obedient to death on the cross, which we know was the Father's plan A 
from the foundation of the world to provide forgiveness for sins. But that wasn't the end of the story, not by any stretch. Ephesians 1 talks about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but also in the one that's to come. Friends, does that description leave out anything in all of creation? Take a look. Is there anything that Christ is not supreme over? No. He is over all. All rule. All authority. All power. All dominion. Every name. Not just now, but forever. So what does that mean for us? Let's pick up at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. Guys, there's so much here. I'm going to say for the record, this section we're in right now, this is what the sermon next week is going to be on. So if it feels rushed, don't worry. We're coming back to it next week. But look at what's happening here, okay? When the supremacy of Christ's power over these so-called exorcists became known, people had a very specific reaction to it, okay? Particularly those who believed, and a lot of them probably believed upon hearing that story, okay? When they believed, they came together, and here's what happened. It says, and a number of them brought uh, who practiced magic arts, which, by the way, this is black magic. This is, this is evil. Any type of magic that's not from God is, is, is evil, okay? So these people bring their, their magical arts. It says they brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Y'all, this is what happens when people recognize that Christ is supreme. This is what it looks like. When he is shown to be true, when his, when his fame is spread, when his goodness is extolled, and when his power is displayed, when it's understood that he is supreme over all else, it rightly produces Allegiance, friends, loyalty, fealty. And, you know, for some, it probably starts out, frankly, as fire insurance, right? Because you don't want to be on the wrong side. God is clearly the winner of any contest. But for those who have a more mature understanding, it's a realization that God in Christ, he deserves to be pursued and recognized and honored and praised and feared and eventually loved for who he is. Ultimately, that's the point of all this, to love him for who he is and for what he's done. And there's, there's so much more that's connected to this passage that we're going we're gonna to hang it up for today. We're going to revisit it next week with a fresh perspective. But before you start to mentally check out, okay, those of you that are falling asleep, I want to insist that you look at these lists. Look, look at the left side of the screen, okay? Have you attributed these things to Christ in your life? Do you, do you acknowledge 
His supremacy in your life in these areas? Do you question that he is true or that his word is true? Do you wonder if he is valuable enough to share with others? Do you doubt his goodness because life doesn't always go the way that you want it to go? Do you fear that perhaps he's really not wise enough, big enough, powerful enough or, you know, to, to bring a good resolution to this fallen world? Friends, I encourage you to take a look at the right side of the screen and, and decide to let God shape your mind about his attributes. Help him to give you or ask him to give you these, these attitudes. If, listen, we must see Christ for who he is. We must see it because we want our lives to, refle to reflect the faithfulness of Christ. He deserves that, friends. So if we can't see how good and how great he is, we're never going to understand just, just, just how incredible, just how amazing his sacrifice is on our behalf. You know, the, the second person of the triune God would step down from heaven and die for sinners like me and like you. That's incredible. That's amazing. That should affect you. And you know, if maybe it's affected you for the first time this morning in a way that you hadn't expected it to, or, or if your, your heart is churning within you and you need to express that, yes, Jesus is supreme. And if you want to place your faith in him today, now's your chance. And if you've already placed your faith in him, but you want to be faithful in Christian baptism by immersion, as the word teaches, you have that opportunity this morning. We actually warmed up the baptistry this time. So it's ready to go. And if you have already gone through those steps and, and you're a local, uh, excuse me, you're a, a local person, obviously, then, and you're a baptized believer and you want to join this body, hey, we'd love to have you. If you just need prayer, if you want to come up and confess, hey, I've been slipping and I, I need to, to walk faithfully with Christ, whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do, you got a chance this morning, okay? 